You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising genre hopping podcast on the playlist podcast network this is be real i'm chance solemn pfeiffer and i'm noah ballard and we have a category that we're teeing up for you today that's the extent of my golf jokes um it's golf comedies for caddyshack's 40th anniversary noah what's your feeling I feel strongly about the podcast. I have to say I feel almost nothing to the game of golf. Yes. We're very well positioned then to do this show. Chance, have you ever been golfing? I think you know I haven't. Have you ever been like miniature golfing? Definitely. Okay. I've been an American child, so yeah. Sure. But you don't do it. Like, I do it somewhat regularly. I would say every summer I probably play two to three games of miniature golf. Oh, wow. So you must have a hell of a putting game. Yes. I spend the whole summer watching my name go up the <laughs> the montage board of who leads the nation in uh, mini golf strokes. So we're here to talk Caddyshack for its 40th anniversary. It came out in 1980. And then we got two 1996 golf comedies. What was in the water? Uh, very different styles of comedies in Happy Gilmore uh, and Tin Cup. With that said, Be Real is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network. Please check out our sibling shows like The Discourse, The Fourth Wall, Deep Focus Podcast, Indie Beat, and more. You can find that feed wherever you get your shows, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Should be all over the place. And please do like, rate, and subscribe. Thanks. Welcome to the Bushwood Country Club. The membership's exclusive. You think I'd join this crummy snobatorium? The help is outrageous. <laughs> the madness is contagious. Bad language, fooling around on the course, poor caddying. But this whole place Caddy Shack, starring Chevy Chase as Ty Webb. Who is that disgusting man over there? A sportsman who really knows how to score. So, what brings you to this uh, nape of the woods, neck of the wave? How come you're here? Rodney Dangerfield as Al Servant, a big shot. My dinghy's bigger than your whole boat! With an even bigger mouth. <laughs> hey, somebody step on a duck. <laughs> Ted Knight as Judge Smales, a man of dignity. <laughs> and a sense of fair play. I've sent his boys younger than you to the gas chamber. Michael O'Keefe as Danny Noonan. A caddy who wants an education and gets one. You take drugs, Danny? Every day. Good. Cindy Morgan as Lacey Underall. She's got a bad reputation, and she's working hard to keep it. You want to tie me up with some of your ties? And Bill Murray as Carl Spackler. Uh, Just a harmless squirrel, not a plastic explosive or anything. Nothing to be worried about. He's not crazy about gophers, (coughs) but he is crazy. License to kill gophers. By the government of the United Nations. And introducing Mr. Gopher as himself. Chance, I need to admit something to you up front. Yes. I understand this movie means a lot to a lot of people who watched it as children uh, and then were shown it as uh, probably two young siblings of people who liked it earlier. Yeah. 
I gotta tell you, I've never seen this. Or I had never seen this movie. I'd never seen it before, like last year. So it was kind of strange to be like, let's double it up. I'll do it twice in two years. Um, yeah, I get the impression that it defined like a new wave of comedy for like Gen Xers because you get this intersection of like Harold Ramis is a very early like 80s comedy persona and then you have SNL influences of course with Chevy Chase and Bill Murray and then you have Rodney Dangerfield who has this sort of like late blooming 80s movie comedy career um and yeah so I think it's like a touchstone for the 80s basically it kind of kicks things off it's like it's drugged out it's we it's weird <laughs> um you know it's definitely uh, I think targeted at like 13 year old boys oh yeah what's the beginning of that like hard pg-13 light r comedy central you know sex comedy Mm -hmm. that will be handed like you said like to snl cast member to snl cast member like a goddamn marathon that runs almost what 30 something years right it's a very dumb movie at points, but it also has that kind of intellectualism to how stupid it is. Like there is that sort of political undercurrent um, to slobs versus snobs and like where people's money comes from and gags that sort of resemble Zucker Abrams Zucker gags. Um, I think that was when you laughed the hardest is when, you know, Caddyshack took its, took its turn at sort of like airplane spatial gags you, you just love those. absolutely you love those yeah and we should say we were able through technology this week to watch the movie kind of together but sort of like we were on the phone watching the movie at the same time yeah we did that with two of these which we never do we don't ever do it we should do it more it was really fun it was fun and but I, let's get to the premise yeah. of caddyshack an exclusive golf course has to deal with a brash new member and a destructive dancing gopher. That pretty much sums it up. But it, in fact, it doesn't include the protagonist of the movie, which is kind of funny. Yeah, this is a strange movie because it. I mean, to say it has a premise is a little silly because it kind of has this comedic triangle of Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, and Rodney Dangerfield. And then in the middle of that is this not very compelling dramatic arc for Michael O'Keefe, who plays Danny, one of the caddies, who is, you know, has this giant Catholic family and they don't have any money and they're trying, he's trying to go to school and maybe he'll win the, the caddy tournament scholarship that Ted Knight, who runs the, runs the country club, will, like might give him. And maybe his uh, girlfriend, played by Sarah Holcomb, is pregnant. And it's just like, that's kind of how the movie moves forward. Without that, it would not move forward. Um, yeah. It's funny. It's funny, by the way, how all of these movies kind of deal with the the really slow pace of golf, and then have to take sometimes exaggerated steps, like just to move the movie forward. No, it definitely does have the plotting of a game of golf, where it's like sort of ambient chit chat, punctuated with like moments of like abrasive visual humor. Sure. And it's like, oh, well, wait, we're on the 15th hole. I guess we're almost done. <laughs> so this comes out right after Animal House. And you can definitely see that sort of national lampoonian 
kind of voice separating itself where the scenes do like they're allowed to go on a little bit. Like there's something very similar between the pool scene and like the food fight scene from animal house. Definitely. Where, where it's, yeah, they let it go as long and as crazy as it can. And then watch it like get broke. Watching it getting broken up is also somewhat funny. Yes, I would agree. I, the poop. I think if the, I think if there's like a takeaway about like American comedy movies 40 years later, it's just that for being a 90 minute movie, this movie does seem to sprawl because it's centered on the comedy of place, not the comedy of people necessarily. Definitely in the, in the current age of Hollywood comedies where they even exist, you can't mount a movie and just be like let's just check out this crazy world of teachers or malls or golf like that won't get a movie made anymore and there's something very charming and easygoing about the fact that this movie's not really anchored to character well there's something appealing too and something of a uh time capsule here of the disparity of wealth that the country club thing as an institution, you know, it separates this class of people. And like on one end you have, you know, the doctor who refuses to like go into the hospital when there's an emergency (laughs) and you have like the shady land developer and you have this like somewhat corrupt judge, you know, and then the people in their orbit and like the children that get bounced from, you know, seemingly like, uh, family to family uh and then on the other side it's the people who tend to those people the the titular caddy shack of this house where people congregate to get paid to get like their bottled coke and to hang out with their friends and there's this interesting sort of i wouldn't call it diverse but there is an interesting mix of race too in the 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 working class of the caddy shack, you know, where you have like these clearly Italian sort of Saturday night fever guys, mm-hmm. you know, mixed with the, the Michael O'Keefe, like very boy next door, lower middle class white guy. And then you even have a few moments where Porterhouse, uh, the black attendant to the, the judge like has a moment of being pretty pissed about some, some overtly racist language too. Yeah. And just burns the hell out of his shoes. Yeah. Um, It seems the judge doesn't remember. But I think getting into that conflict, that's sort of what you were talking about, this idea of instead of character analyzing place. I mean, sort of showing these elite versus, you know, the non-elite, the pedestrians, the proletariat here is a really funny and almost felt kind of relevant parallel to our sort of current you know, space between classes uh, that Caddyshack feels sort of timely as we're, you know, looking at who these people are who make a lot of money and how they really aren't any more competent than the people who are carrying your golf bag around. Right. There's a lot of middle, I don't know, let's say cinematic middle class fibbing in other 80s comedies in large part due to like John Hughes and it's not that like the middle class in America like doesn't exist but certainly it's been used in Hollywood comedies starring mostly white people to be like you don't have to think about the other dimensions of this world because it's just a family in an average house with an average amount of money and an average life and it's yeah it's funny to go back to one like this and be like it's not just slobs versus snobs as an idiom 
it's uh, people with a lot of money and influence and people who can't possibly get it. Um, and Danny is even one of the good recurring bits of the movie is him trying to like cozy up to the golfers to be like, oh, I want to be a lawyer when I grow up. And he well, he wants great... to get that that scholarship. I mean, right. that's the central drama for Danny is the idea of will I be able to pay for a life that will allow me to properly advance into adulthood with this college scholarship? And that's why he cozies up to the judge. Um played brilliantly by ted knight yeah i want to talk about ted knight but there is the great the great line where ted knight is pissed that uh rodney dangerfield has like turned on journey in the middle of the golf course and right then danny tries to cozy up and be like i'm interested in practicing law myself and he's like oh really what kind he's like oh you know like noise statutes (laughs) which is a good bit um but i would argue that ted knight actually makes this movie Judge Smales. For sure. And I would argue, too, um, there's a supporting nod to just the absurdity that is Rodney Dangerfield on screen. Absolutely. Can we talk about Mr. Dangerfield? Yeah. He plays Al Cervic. And he, it's also like an interesting uh, political commentary that you wouldn't, that feels 40 years old of like, he's sort of like new money trash in the eyes of Judge Smales waspy versus sort of like i guess you would call like european ethnic he's like a polish real estate developer and we're still at an age in american history where judge smales is like really against that yeah we're not just talking about uh segregation there's like something even like a, a notch above that that he only wants to be around yeah his his waspy friends right and the golf course should be you know, no music, no partying, just sort of a very quiet civil affair the way it's always been done. Tradition versus progress. Right. Um, all three of these movies, we should say, as you pointed out to me yesterday, definitely hinge on the interloper to the stately tradition of golf. That's what that is part and parcel to the golf comedy. And I think this one yields some pretty interesting gags i mean how do you do you feel any particular way about the comedy stylings of rodney dangerfield uh they don't really make sense to me if i'm being honest um i would love for someone to just like synopsize like what genre of humor sort of the uh acerbic drunk kind of mutterings that rodney dangerfield (laughs) tends to lean on as like his the way he does his thing. I gather it's sort of a loonier version of like what will become roast humor. Um, but with like a little more persona, lots of take my wife shit. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you know, he doesn't get any respect is uh, my impression. Yeah. That's but the what thing. an interesting career. Cause I mean, he had been a, an influential standup for like the prior 15 years, but this is the beginning of his film stardom at the ripe age of 60. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And then he'll go on to do the back to school and easy Easy money money and all that. It is interesting. We should do a a danger pod. It gives you hope that you too could turn a corner at age 60. Um, You think in 29 years, I'm going to peak by being rude and never focusing your eyes on anything in particular. I think I already have both of those things down. (laughs) 
let me just say again, though, I think that it is Ted Knight who makes the movie because so many of the gags in this like really repetitive sense are just uh, Al and Ty Webb played by Chevy Chase and Carl and Danny like rubbing him the wrong way. And if it was not a ball to watch Ted Knight be so distressed, um, the movie wouldn't work at all. But he has that perfect thing that, again, is a recurring uh, theme in all three of these movies of like the waspy put together white guy losing his mind at how much he hates the successful rogue. And Ted Knight by the end of the movie is like doing like Al Pacino and devil's advocate or something where he, we both laughed so hard where he's talking to Dan. It's like, Danny, you're going to play and risk your job. And he goes, well, and like wags his tongue, like Satan or something. Yeah. It's pretty strange. It reminds me a lot of the performance, um, like by John Vernon, who plays the Dean in animal house. Totally. Um, or even in real genius. Um, what's the his William name Atherton from die hard. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of losing it with the popcorn bit. Yeah, uh, we should. It's we very should similar. Make a like whatever is the opposite of a rogues gallery of like the 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 white guy who it's just fun to see jilted over and over and over, and the whole movie hangs on how upset that guy is. <laughs> Let's talk about Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. Chevy Chase, uh, as you know, Chance has a very special place in my heart as that like charming like scumbag yeah always saying like the rudest thing he can possibly it's like it's on the same level but it's the exact polar opposite of whatever rodney dangerfield is doing of being like so slick but also like so offensive at the same time sure or like he, he he'll say like very absurd things that he's so droll about it like if you don't get it like you're the asshole like there's a part where uh Judge Smales tells Ty Webb, like, you're crazy. And he just goes, that's what they said about Son of Sam. Which right. is good. <laughs> which doesn't make any sense. But he, the joke is like how normally he said it. It's great. And then you just, yeah, have him being an asshole. And the, the opening interactions with Danny are great where he can't remember his name. He calls him Tommy. Then he calls him Betty. And then he does the very Griswoldian delivery of like, uh, well, Danny, you take drugs? And he goes, yes, sir, every day. Good. It's very funny. And there's that goofy scene to bring in Bill Murray where they're just like hanging out in the shed that Bill Murray calls. They're just hanging out in the shed that Bill Murray calls home. And it's like the scene like just doesn't want to start. Yeah, nope. they keep like talking back and forth and like presumably Chevy Chase is like trying to hit this weird like play it as it lies kind of shot out of his living room. Yeah. But Bill just like wants to chat and hang out. It's a very odd scene. So when we were watching it yesterday, I was like, this scene doesn't work because they hate each other. And then I went back and looked at it and they actually credit that scene with repairing their relationship after the falling out they had at SNL. Because by the way, if you want a good quote about how much of an asshole Chevy Chase was uh, during the peak of cocaine and SNL, Bill Murray will give it to you. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're like, it's nice that they were friends again after that. But like, their comedy stylings are just oil and water in that scene. I think it's because Chevy doesn't know. He can't like be like, you're dumb because the Carl character is so transparently like dumb. So they right. don't, they don't work together. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think frankly, 
Bill Murray is best in this movie, not when he's like doing his goofy, what I called yesterday, his Chris O'Dowd voice. Um, I don't endorse that comparison. You, it doesn't have to be canon for you, but I think other people are going to go, are going to hear that and they're going to, it's going to deeply resonate with them. He's not anyway. Scottish, but neither is Sarah Holcomb. Oh my God. Sarah Holcomb, terrible accent. Terrible. Sorry. No, but Bill Murray also, I, I think is better when he's not doing his shtick alone or against the gopher, but when he's with other people, like that scene is like, frankly, one of the weird highlights in the movie. And also, I think the best scene in the movie is him and the bishop during the thunderstorm playing the 18 best holes of his life. Incredible. So if I can describe this scene for you, the bishop pulls in Bill Murray to be his caddy. He's like trying to, in the afternoon, get nine or 18 holes in or something before this rainstorm comes. And of course, like the second they tee off the first hole, it starts to rain. But and everyone runs to the the the, the club, but yet the bishop and Bill Murray remain, and they have this conversation where Bill Murray's like, "Let's play through." You know, it's it's they say the heavy stuff's not coming until later, and it's already like pouring rain. <laughs> so of course, it like turns into the perfect storm in this bizarre montage where like the bishop for some reason like is getting every shot to go his way despite the weather, and sometimes like enhanced by the weather right so on the 18th hole he's he's playing the game of his life and he just needs to get this one last shot in to demarcate whatever lowest round he's ever had and he misses a somewhat easy shot and he throws or he, he raises up his golf club and shouts to the heavens oh rat fart at the top of his lungs and immediately gets struck by lightning and then, like, turns against his faith for the rest of the movie. That's right. And it's so funny. And Bill Murray just—it's just, it's just so him. funny. And Bill Murray just well after he yeah is rendered unconscious by the electrocution. Yeah, Bill Murray just runs away. But they've really like had this pact together that they're gonna do something amazing. And that's sort of the the golf thing, right? Like at some point, if you if you get through how fucking boring it seems to be, <laughs> and like the fact that it's wholly outdoors, like at some point you're gonna have this miraculous thing where god or fate or something takes over and you're finally able to like get that get that perfect shot Mm -hmm. and this movie really plays that for an absolute winner and i think is frankly has nothing to do with the main three plots of the movie but is one of the best scenes uh herein fantastic Where do we ultimately land on Caddyshack? I think Caddyshack's great. Wow. I had okay. a lot of fun watching it. It's got like a lot of those 80s comedy things that I liked, including Chevy Chase, including like the weird, somewhat absurdist visual humor. Mm-hmm. Like at one point, Bill Murray's just like telling a story to like one of the younger caddies and he's like seemingly threatening him with like a pitchfork, but that's otherwise like unreferenced by the dialogue that they have. Right. Like stuff like that cracks me up. But yeah, I was laughing pretty good yesterday. So I think this is ultimately a good good. It's a good movie to go back and 
like read about how they made it like that could be a good way to celebrate its 40th anniversary because it was possibly the most cocaine addled production this side of oh i don't know like maybe after hours <laughs> i don't know nice. what, are the, what are the other classic cocaine productions I would have given that to New York, New York, a movie that apparently was shot without a script. Uh, but what are you going to do? So was this one at times. They would just like start doing like so much of the Bill Murray stuff is improvised. Ramis gave an interview where he's like, thank God we came up with the gopher at the last minute to tie the whole movie together, which is funny because it both like does and doesn't. Like if you can imagine, like imagine the movie without the gopher, it does have no beginning or end. But also, like, it's just a, it's just a puppet that gives Bill Murray something to do. It's not like this narrative <laughs> linchpin. <laughs> so well, it does cause the explosions that render the decision of the final game one way or the other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I like this movie. I I haven't loved it either time. I again think the Michael O'Keefe plotline is kind of lame and his scenes with Sarah Holcomb are pretty terrible. And the sex scene... That doesn't even need to be there. That's one of the weird plots of this movie is that bad accents and, and the, the fake maybe pregnancy, pregnancy scare. Yeah. And then, like, there's like a sex scene with uh, Cindy Morgan who plays Lacey Underall, who I think is the judge's niece or cousin or something, which um, is not good. That's that's just an that's just a movie trying to fill some sort of cocaine heterosexual breast quota. Um, all this said, though, I I like it fine. It's it is funny, and I was charmed in that way of like we just will probably never see a studio comedy like this again, where it's just like what would happen at a golf course. Let's let some of the funniest comedic minds of the generation suss that out. So right. I'll give it a good good. Yeah. I mean, that, of course, with the asterisks, like you said, that, you know, it is like a goofy teen sex comedy with 1980 level yeah. uh, sexual politics and agency with for its female characters. But that aside. Funny. Funny. <laughs> also, so funny. <laughs> also, what if what a what a interesting little window in Hollywood and world history where you could just cast Chevy Chase as like a carefree, attractive man. I mean, in two years, he's Clark Griswold or whatever three. He's like, he goes so fast from being, uh, you know, SNL smart ass playing jazz piano eligible bachelor to like America's dad. Well, then he kind of comes back too with Fletch in '85. That's right. Okay, that's, that's the a other movie side we should it. talk about one of these days. Um, I know how much you love Chevy Chase. I really struggle. He's funny in this because he's yeah. in, in it for like. But 10 it minutes. is true how how the mighty do fall, and Chevy Chase has not been. You only cast him if you want issues. Now it's not carefree anymore. Yeah, Bill Murray basically wins that battle for sure. Hi, everyone. Noah and I want to briefly interrupt today's show to ask for your help in continuing to support our black colleagues, neighbors, and fellow citizens in this watershed moment of protesting for civil rights, justice, and parity. If you're a listener with an interest in books, 
Noah would like to direct you to the City College and Association of Author Representatives Internship Scholarship, which allocates resources and funding to students looking to start their careers in publishing. As for me, I'd love you to support Don't Shoot PDX, a black activist and advocacy organization that's been doing incredible work to stifle and permanently end police abuses in Portland, Oregon. And because of our eternal Nebraska connection, we'd encourage you to honor the life of slain Omaha resident James Skurlock and consider a donation to his family. All links are in our show notes and on our website, berealpodcast.com. Finally, if you're not in the publishing world or not a Portlander or Nebraskan, seek out the leaders and organizations in your community who've been doing the work both this summer and for years upon years to protect, support, and elevate black lives. Thank you all. Had you seen Happy Gilmore before? Had never seen it. Neither of us. You'd never seen it. Our big, um, like, Sandler, 90s Sandler people. I had seen this when it was out in on video at, like, a, a birthday party, um, perhaps in the late 90s. But that was the last time. That might have been the water boy, too, come to think of it. Um, but I had seen this movie in some capacity before, but I did not remember it. And frankly, it hit all the things that I remembered about it. This is Sandler freshly off of SNL, a year later than Billy Madison. He co-wrote the script with Tim Herlihy, and it's also the first time he works with Dennis Dugan, who ends up directing a ton of Sandler movies. Uh, Sohan, Big Daddy, Grown Ups, um, Just Go With It, I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry. Um, It's interesting that, not to be mean, but it sparks a lifetime of collaboration with a director who's not very good. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it does really speak to, in my opinion, please forgive me, Adam, a deeply mediocre streak running through most of the cinema endeavors of this collective of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I want to say at the top that, like, when it comes to, like, what makes us laugh, I know that there are people ranging from my childhood friends to Paul Thomas Anderson, who just find his uh, comedic fury, his man-child fury, just hilarious. Um, But I think on a truly subjective level, they are just tapping into something that I don't get. I I think it's interesting. The man-child fury works for me when it is transposed to drama. I think he is a great dramatic actor in Meyerwood Stories and Uncut Gems and uh, Punch Drunk Love. But just like him swearing and bashing golf clubs is, uh, is somewhere below Chevy Chase for me. What I don't want to do is just like mimic the snobby critics who in 1996 were like, this is for 11-year-olds, I'm so above this. Um, but I don't sense a lot of like pathos in the happy Gilmore character. Whereas like, I know the Safdie brothers watch a movie like this and they're like, there's so much pathos. Let's put him in uncut gems. Um, but I don't, I don't get any of that emotional depth. Well, it's funny because like everybody else in this movie from like the grandmother character to the love interest, to the coach, to fucking Bob Barker, they all have so much pathos that it's so weird by contrast that like the highlight 
you know, guy whose name's on the marquee is on in such a different like key as them. Hmm. The setup for this movie is that Happy Gilmore is a lifelong hockey devotee who keeps trying out for uh, was it junior college teams like over and no, over the Boston and over again? Bruins. He keeps trying out for the farm system of the Bruins. Yeah, that's stupid. He's never going to get taken by the Bruins. That's the point. <laughs> Um, he can't skate a lick. He's just like always on the ice. That's really first. what's holding him back from ice hockey is his inability to skate. Right. Just like I'm not any good at basketball because I can't run or jump. But according to the logic of this movie. Is that really, is that your weakness is your inability to run and jump? No, it's because I don't try on defense. Um, but this movie is posits that because his slap shot is so powerful and I do like, I, I guess I like the fact that no one in the movie is ever like, that doesn't make any sense, Happy. Because <laughs> it no, doesn't. You, you can't hold it up to that to that lens. Yeah, but I think it's actually funny that the nobody ever questions the fact that like power doesn't equal accuracy. So he ends up being able to drive a golf ball 400 odd yards, um, which is like just enough to put him in position to compete with much, much better golfers. For 400 years, golf has been a gentleman's game, a game of tradition, etiquette, and above all, sportsmanship, until now. Y'all ready for this? Meet Happy Gilmore. He was a hockey player. That's my puck, baby! Don't you ever touch my puck! Who was skating on thin ice. But when his grandma needed his help... Mrs. Gilmore owes the IRS $270,000. We're going to have to sell the house to someone else. But she's an old lady. I mean, look at her. She's old. He discovered a new talent. That was like 400 yards away. That's unbelievable. Now he's going from the rinks... Step right up, folks. See if you can outdrive the amazing golf ball uh, whacker guy. To the links. Hey, where are you going with those clubs, punk? I'm your caddy. He's gonna be on the tour. That's that's super. He's got the swing. He's got the drive. He shoots, he scores! He's got the balls. Oh god, I hurt a little, but I'm alright. Quite a large and economically diverse crowd here at the Invitational. I guess it's the new tour sensation, Happy Gilmore. Hey, if I saw myself in clothes like those, I'd have to kick my own ass. Right. Well, I mean, that is ultimately the first challenge for him is turning just that raw power into something shorter. And that's why he like finds his true calling in miniature golf. Yes. With the help of Chubbs Peterson played by that. This is what I'm talking about. Carl Weathers is unbelievable in this movie because the with because of the nuance with which he acts with the wooden hand, I would say. The nuance? The, well, so <laughs> the the setup is that this former golf pro's career was ended because an alligator, who will come back later, don't you worry, uh, ate his hand. And it's been replaced with a wooden hand. But the funny thing about it in the movie is that, like, they didn't, like, digital out Carl Weathers' hand. He's just holding a stick with a hand on it. So his arm is, like, a hand lengths longer than an arm should be if someone had had eaten his hand. But it's so funny because it's so off that it's, like, so much longer 
as to think that maybe he just tried to build it himself and that's what caused the it's that to me is unbelievably funny um, but it's also like the fifth minute of Chubbs Peterson's scream time. So he like lifts it up and you're like, did you not notice that I have a three foot long <laughs> arm? <laughs> right. It's so great. Um, I will say that one of my primary gripes of this movie is that Chubbs Peterson surely should have a place as like the second build character in the movie as his coach who helps him the whole time and he really is only in it for like 12 minutes um right yeah this movie seems like so unsure what to do with the subplots of everything but him playing shooter mcgavin played by christopher mcdonald that it spends a little bit of time with like julie bowen it spends a little bit of time with Carl Weathers. It spends a little bit of time with Frances Bay as the grandma and her like weird relationship with Ben Stiller, who's like the like the hard ass orderly at the nursing home she's at or whatever. But I didn't even remember getting them like... to Sorry, go ahead. Who's getting them to knit things for some like underground knitting he's trying to sell. But I didn't even remember until like a day later that they didn't resolve the Stiller plot line at all. That's like, no. I, what, I, what this movie has against like basic script mechanics when it is basically just the shape of a sports movie, I don't understand. Like just have Chubbs Peterson be his coach for two acts of the movie. If you still need him to absurdly die, like fine. But then there's also, and you were, you brought up that Kevin Nealon shows up as this sort of like eccentric, shamanistic, sort of Ty, you know, successor to Ty Webb, who's like, you know, talking him through uh, one of the holes on like one of his first invitationals. And then he's just gone. And we were like, I thought Kevin Nealon was like going to be his coach or something or his advisor. Right. He's like fourth or fifth build in this movie. And he's only in it for that, like half of a scene, which is totally bizarre. Um, there's also Richard Kyle who plays Jaws from uh, Moonraker. Yeah, who's in this movie as like the general contractor that Adam Sandler works for, who we accidentally shot with a nail gun, but he's like still they're still pals. Yeah, he's he's pretty funny, I think. But I right. I, I don't know this movie just like misses on some really basic stuff in terms of script and direction sure. where like Dennis Dugan at the end, we both commented like it tees up like a pretty funny chaotic scene of Christopher McDonald, just making a run for it in the gold jacket, like being like, that's mine. And I think Mr. Larson, the Richard Kyle character is supposed to like beat him up, but they just like can't figure out how to show that visually. Yeah. So they just like, they cut they, just, they dissolve to like a car driving down the street the in the movie. next shot yeah it's very weird and there's also sort of a weird maybe clumsily handled story with alan covert as the like transient caddy that like he's slowly putting his life together as the movie goes on by by like using the resources available to him like adjacent to being happy's caddy uh, but they really also never – he doesn't even speak. He, like, never has a line. He's, like, a squeegee guy at the beginning, and then he's the caddy because, like, he's the first warm body that Adam Sandler comes across. And then he's, like, cleaning his undies and the ball cleaner. 
And then he's like looking a little bit better and he's got his hair cut and he's like slicked it back or whatever. And then like we just never hear from him again. There's just some basic proficiency stuff like that that is missing. And for a 90 minute movie, it's kind of inexcusable to have no real resolution on anything other than he won the golf thing. Right. (laughs) Maybe this wouldn't bother us if we were like big Sandler comedy people, but because I was then looking for a movie experience... I fell short. I tell you who doesn't fall short though is Christopher McDonald. He is the successor no. to Ted Knight. He is the guy who you you know, these terrible polos and like all of these dad jokes and just like we can't have his kind in the country club. And he is so funny. I I read that he almost like twice turned down this role because he was tired of playing bad guys. Um, but then he the apocryphal story is that like then he played golf and he was like this is pretty fun i'm kind of good at this and then he took the (laughs) role he was promised that he could improvise too and i think some of that shit is hilarious like he just puts that um i feel like i've talked about this before with like patrick bateman and um but like i really love the character of like the like the white guy for whom his white privilege is so all consuming that he's kind of like lost his mind. Um, Oh yeah. And I just like loses it further if challenged. Exactly. Um, I love that bit. He just puts a lot of mustard on lines like, Oh, congratulations murderer. Or (laughs) 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 Or when he says hi to the grandmother, like after yelling at him, it can't be, overstated how far he lives up to his name shooter mcgavin he literally like finger guns anytime he gets the ball in the hole and and then other situations where he just wants to draw your attention to something yeah he's a real pistolier it's great i think one of the good christopher uh yeah christopher mcdonald lines is um when he's walking away from the house auction he's like you're in big trouble though pal I eat pieces of shit like you for breakfast. <laughs> you eat pieces of shit for breakfast? It's a really like, and that food is me from Animal House or something. How does Happy Gilmore deal with our uh, our class consciousness? I mean, I do think that it is aware of a class system in place showing that like there are these elites who are actually deeply shitty people um which is like weirdly similar to the don johnson character from uh, tin cup that we'll talk about in a second For sure. but the shooter mcgavin one does speak to a like at some point he he like sort of lists off the i've paid my dues and now it's time for me to succeed as if like if paying one's dues like was the only thing necessary to attain success which i thought was pretty interesting but i don't know that the movie's playing with it in that serious of a way other than to just sort of use the trope to set up goofy broad comedy moments oh yeah it doesn't have it doesn't have quite the caddyshack depth to it but you do have some funny Vern lundquist uh commentary on the events where he's like happy gilmore has brought an economically diverse crowd to tory pines here today (laughs) right absolutely um there's also just a lot of shine for Vern lundquist in this movie Indeed. There's also a lot of shine for Bob Barker, who I think the one of the funniest 
sequences in the film is like the stunt work done when Adam Sandler and Bob Barker allegedly like get into Vista cuffs on the, right. what on the fifth hole or whatever and roll down into the lake. Um, it's such a seamless blend of, I mean, I guess when you look at Bob Barker circa 1996, like you're really just looking for that like flare of white hair and anything else. Like it's just indistinguishable from the next flamboyant polo shirt wearing a wig. Um, but it's such an interesting moment of like old man strength. Yes. Isn't it funny that with modern medicine that you can be old for like 30 years It was amazing to you, I think, yesterday when we were talking, when we Googled Bob Barker to find out that he's still very much alive. I would have bet my monthly, I would have bet him, I would have bet the rent that he was dead and he is not. But he was like, what, 68 when he had that? Like the joke is like, oh, you wouldn't pick on poor old Bob Barker, would you? That was 25 years ago. (laughs) That was indeed 25 years ago. Oh my God. Life. Funny. Shout out to Joe Flaherty playing, I mean, what IMDb calls jeering fan. Uh, oh, yeah. He has that bit when Happy's sort of on his, <laughs> his meteoric rise and he just says, oh, jackass. <laughs> yeah, the dad from Freaks and Geeks you pointed out. I think it says something that you and I, like, we're not averse to that kind of humor. Like, we can see it being successful, like, when other actors put it on. Right. It is just something about, like, the Adam Sandler. And I frankly think I'm more critical of him than you are. Like, I'm one of the people who think that, like, that role was, like, written for him in Uncut Gems. And I don't know that he gave a lot more to it than he gives any other role. Um, I have such trouble buying in. I'm with you. And I think if you have trouble buying into what are allegedly the very best Adam Sandler comedies, you have a little trouble with the movie. Um, I don't know. It just made me mad, too, when there's that hilarious scene about his happy place where Chubbs Peterson, Carl Weathers, comes back and sings, like, Only Just Begun. And he has a beautiful voice. And I think something, like, kind of came together for me at that moment of, like, I was both mad at Hollywood and mad at this movie for, like doing Carl Weathers so dirty. He's like such a talented, like comedic presence with like incredible athletic attributes. And like, uh, I don't know. He should have had a better career. I think. Um, I agree with you. Yeah. It made me mad at this movie too. Where do you fall with this one? I think I'm going to get a little uh, prickly and just say bad, bad. You think it's a bad, bad. I'm really sorry if that's, you know, um, heresy to to some people but like i'm fine i don't need to see this again the thing is like i could just queue up the christopher mcdonald and the carl weathers things on youtube and i wouldn't have to watch this movie again i think this movie clearly like doesn't have a very thought out script and the actual filmmaking is like pretty pedestrian you know as noted by the climactic scene abruptly cutting away to go to some goofy denouement of them taking the house back but i I think there is something that there is more good than bad in the watch here. So I think it's a bad good. That makes sense. Can I talk about a couple golf things real quick? Oh, please. There's been like a funny timely development in golf recently where this, uh, this guy named Bryson DeChambeau, I think his name is, 
got like real muscly in like quarantine and has begun like driving the ball 420 yards routinely, which it's so funny that there's a movie premised on like this crazy guy who like, you know, jerk steps into his swing and like hits it farther than anyone can imagine. And now sports move forward. And here we have a guy who just does it. Incredible. Who says we're recycling these terrible old ideas? That's right. Uh, Another thing I think needs to be said about this category, and I thought of this kind of just seeing like some of the golfers who like popped up in cameos um, is these movies, two of them, 1996, are all so clearly pre-Tiger Woods movies. For sure. He wins his first major the very next year. He wins the Masters in 97. Um, But it's kind of like watching a boxing movie before Ali or like a basketball movie before Bill Russell and I'm like in one way I'm just talking about like how black excellence like changed sports but I think we're also talking about just how like being a 90s kid when you heard about golf you were just like you just associated it with Tiger being like an athletic phenomenon he transformed the sport through this sort of like modern being a modern athlete and all of these movies do feel very old they all bend toward that country club firm handshake with Arnold Palmer kind of world. Yeah, there it definitely is a hard stopping point around the mid 90s like that where you know, suddenly, I mean, yeah, you've got Michael Jordan, you've got Tiger Woods, you've got Ken Griffey Jr., you've got all these people who come in to show sports as something more than like accidental white greatness. <laughs> yeah. Right. Just like some guy who's like, I can hit it real hard. (laughs) Well, I think it's funny, too, and we'll get into this in a second for Tin Cup, but this idea that someone can be so talented just like off the couch. Yeah, right. But like it also speaks to the fact that, you know, a lot of people are trying really fucking hard to get this thing and not being given the opportunity to just like hop off the couch and just like give it a shot. So should we get into Tin Cup? Let's do it. She must think I'm such a loser, lousy driving range pro. Local legend Roy Tincup McAvoy, <laughs> the best player to never hit the big time. It's an easy game, this golf. Wasn't going anywhere. Oh. It's got to be the woman. I thought you said it was a virus. Well, a woman can have the same effect. But ever since Dr. Molly Griswold got inside his head, I think I'm in love with you. He's been changing his whole approach. From the moment I first saw you, I knew I was through with bar girls and strippers and motorcycle chicks and... Stunned, huh? Tell me you're not at least moderately attracted to me. You have moments, Roy. Yeah, well, you tell me which ones are my moments and I'll try and duplicate them. Just thinking about how to get in your heart. It is a Ron Shelton written and directed movie starring Kevin Costner, Rene Russo, Cheech Marin, Don Johnson. Right. It's the Rene Russo sports movie that's not Major League. Right. uh, Starring the down and out Kevin Costner, who's definitely not Bull Durham. Exactly. Uh, Ron Shelton had just been done making Bull Durham and White Men Can't Jump. And he is he's known for these sort of like. Uh, poetic sports dramas that are leisurely in their own way and always seem to find interesting ways of like revealing a sport at somewhere 
far below the top class of the sport. And Tin Cup is really interesting because it feels like it has a lot of that charm, but it's also, I think, absolutely like the bloated third go around that formula for Ron Shelton. Like the budget is, I was just looking at the budgets, like this movie has like a $40 million budget and like, why? (laughs) Because Kevin Costner needed to be paid. (laughs) Um, Possibly. It's long yeah, this at is... like 2.15. It's definitely just like the, I want to do that again, but more. Right. This is sort of like the like sort of movie equivalent to a pair of like billowy pleated linen pants or something. Oh, interesting. Why do you bring that up? Well, I mean, of course, Kevin Costner is wearing <laughs> billowy pleated linen pants throughout most of this movie. Um but it just sort of feels similar, like something that's so out of date that would never be made now. Oh, my God. Something that was clearly too expensive and something that you just like can't imagine what it was like when someone like this wore it fashionably. Totally. Although I don't know if he's fashion. Uh, this, this movie raised a thought in my mind that was, you know, Kevin Costner was in his mid-30s by the time he became a star. And part of his star persona, I think, is being washed. Like, as early as Bull Durham in Field of Dreams, he's just, like, a dad age who never quite made it. And that, like, yeah. really carries through it. It's almost laughable, like, in Wyatt Earp when he's just like, I'm an angry young man with all the promise in the world. And it's like, no, you're not. We like you because you're Kevin Costner. And you're, like, perpetually you know, been out in the sun too long. <laughs> it's a tried and true sort of, yeah, white guy premise where it's like, oh, like life's got me down. I got some IRS issues. I'm just like working for cash at the local um, driving range. In Salome, West Texas. Yeah, this like dusty population, only armadillos, West right. Texas town. Yeah, they're... There is something sort of unbelievable and hyperbolic about just how dusty and how sad this driving range is that someone like Renee Russo, who has the kind of disposable income that can lead her to play golf, would ever even think about driving so far out of her way to get here. But alas, the movie brings them together. And Kevin Costner, the way he does parenthetically uh, in Bull Durham with Susan Sarandon, gets a boner that his sports acumen cannot get over. (laughs) That's a funny way of describing it. Um, Yeah, you can also see this movie as sort of, you know, stretching to the bounds of disbelief in the way of like you know ron shelton was a minor league ball player so the the believability and detail around the sort of long summer of bus trips in bull durham which like makes that movie like it's really fun to see that him posit that this world exists in west texas but like when when renee russo's character shows up for her first golf lesson at like night i was just like what day of the week is it Where's she coming right. from? How'd she book this lesson? It, it makes no sense. Do they have like some sort of online scheduling system or something? Yeah. It's very weird. But yeah, there, there is something off about like where and why are we right now? <laughs> um, but you know, however, which happens pretty quickly when Don Johnson rolls onto the set that everything's going to be at least some level more serious. 
and he, more thrilling. All three of these movies have a great foil. Um, and Don Johnson is a fantastic foil to Kevin Costner. Um, right. But there, there, I, there's something good about how he plays it just as like, you know, the guy who doesn't fuck over his whole life at every turn just to satisfy his own ego. I think it's a great sports movie writing moment where David Sims tries to throw Roy a bone and is just like, come caddy for me at this like invitational. Cause like we used to play golf in college and um, they get in this fight over whether to like take an easy shot on a par three or like try to get a Eagle or something. And, and Roy's just like, just do it. And David Sims is like, no, I think I'll try to win the tournament in a normal way. And uh, there's the thing where somehow Roy gets coaxed into being like, I bet your, your caddy says he could make it. And David Sims is like, if you, if you like drop my bag of clubs and like start playing golf in front of everyone right now, you're fired. And like Roy's just like, no, this is a sports movie. I'm going to show my shit. And then after that, David Sims is like, yeah, like I said, you're fired. And you kind of understand the, uh, the weight of the system a little bit because it kicks his ass. Cause like, yeah, you can't do that. Right. And I was proud of the movie for doing that and for making, frankly, the Roy McAvoy, the Kevin Costner character, such a fucking dick yeah. that as to make him not really the hero of this movie. There are some wonderful Ron Shelton hallmarks that remain beautifully intact in this movie. One of which is this, successor to Crash Davis from Bull Durham where like the athletes who understand the game on a philosophical level are often tormented by that they are not better at the game because they have like written volumes of poetry about said game which is a a fu- uh, like the the shape of a fuck up character that I love and here's the other thing about Ron Shelton that I just adore is you and I have never played a round of golf in our lives but he has this thing where if you watch a Ron Shelton movie about a sport even if you don't know shit at the end of the movie, you will think you understand the sport. And that happened totally. And it's all because he's such a good writer of these lines. Like um, golf is about, uh, you know, gaining control over your mind and body and giving it up all at the same time is what Roy says. And I was just like, Oh, I understand golf. Now I got it. Even though I don't. Yeah, there is that too. I have to argue, though, on the other side of it, Ron Shelton knows nothing about psychotherapy. No. And I felt like I, having just been a patient of psychotherapy for some years now, was like, that's not, that's not quite how it works, Ron. It's, but I'm it, sure you're good with the golf. It's pretty embarrassing how he paints Dr. Molly Griswold, um, played by Rene Russo. There's like a couple things going on there where he he's never been great at writing women characters. Like, people... You remember in White Men Can't Jump, like Rosie Perez plays Jeopardy for like 15 minutes of the movie. He has so little idea what to do with the women characters that he has to write them these like crazy side roads. And I would argue that if you are going to be, if first of all, if your movie's already a half an hour too long, and if you're going to be like not great at writing women, just make it a golf movie with guys. Like don't put this um, sort of, shamed weird like admits she's a nutcase therapist in the movie right who then has a breakdown wholly related to her partner's success like on the sideline 
as the cl- as her emotional climax. Yeah, it doesn't make a ton of sense, and I don't really get. I mean, I get that she supports him the way that nobody else does, but then this the the climax of this movie is a deeply like peculiar way to frame a sports movie and a movie that really kind of requires you to like the central figure in order to appreciate the film. That's true. So yeah, at the end, Roy McAvoy like just begins to much like happy Gilmore has earned his way through like regional invitationals into playing the U S open, um, has a terrible day has a record-breaking day of 62 strokes, which, by the way, that record still stands at 63. Nobody's ever, nobody's ever done the fake Roy McAvoy. Um, but then, yeah, he gets into this, um, well, I guess whatever the opposite of like a Pyrrhic victory would be, like he, he loses and loses hard in a very memorable way. Right. He like refuses. It's this one shot that he's been unable to make the whole tournament and he decides that he's going to make the shot until he runs out of fucking balls in his bag and almost disqualifies and ends up with what like a 12 on that hole he ends up with a 12 on that hole that like not only he could have won it if he had played it safe and and laid up uh whatever that means um (laughs) but because he goes for this like unlikely difficult you know, look how big my dick is shot. Right. He, he barely qualifies for the next year's open. Right. But he does. But people cheer him anyway, because he did something incredibly improbable and incredibly stupid. You're saying the ending doesn't work for you because you don't like Roy and it champions them too hard. I just don't quite understand like what the, purpose at the end of having everybody be so excited but i guess it's an interesting filmic trick that like for almost a five or six minute sequence we're being or being made to watch something awkward of like this dude hitting a ball over and over and over and over and over again into the this body of water this water hazard and like you see jim nance playing himself just like head and hands like he can't even watch (laughs) You know, like you got Don Johnson, like being like, what are you doing? Like you're embarrassing me, just me playing against you. Right. And you know, Rene Russo's behind the little wire at the sideline, fucking like crying, unsure if she's happy or sad. And then finally with the last ball, he gets it in and everyone, like everyone loses their mind. Yeah. You, can I do my, uh, Jim Nance joke that I did last night while I watched it? Please. After Roy McAvoy misses for like the 10th time in a row, he's just like, I can't watch this. This is like the most painstaking thing I've ever experienced. And I turn to Sarah and I go, that from a guy who's about to work with Phil Sims for the next 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is interesting too how these movies have a competing sense of would an outlier character like this would that how would that affect viewers yeah and happy gilmore kind of suspects that that it would like increase tenfold the amount of people and potentially like nutcase like (laughs) intense fans yeah um whereas tin cup yeah it's it, it shows the producers at one point the main producer says something like i need a hero here i don't need this guy and it's right. so interesting that 
like by the end he is kind of a hero but he's also not and it's almost like the movie is also asking similar questions of like is this guy really like the hero of the movie here i think that's his bullshit i think that's the quintessential like ron shelton failure character like billy hoyle and white men can't jump or crash davis and bull durham is like they just don't understand they understand they believe they understand something on a deep almost metaphysical level about like what it is to play the sport in the most honorable or rigorous way possible but when we reach the industrialized celebritized version of that sport you will fail and be embarrassing if you try to play the sport as though you were paul bunyan I don't know for that. That's sort of an interesting question to me. This character who needs to be like refuses to compete unless he can be perfect. And then when that moment arrives, like, you know, that Casey at bat kind of thing. Right. But like, that's kind of what we are hungry for. So in a way, like he almost solidified the fact that of course he's going to be on the tour next year. You know, he was an interesting character and maybe that presages, you know, not necessarily the rise, but certainly the fall of someone like Tiger Woods, like in the mid to late 2000s. So I don't know. Maybe that's the bigger argument is that like what is what where golf goes or where any professional sports goes is to those people who will not do anything until they make that crazy shot i mean that for me like that's kind of the big takeaway of the last dance with mj is like some of these things yeah he pulled it off but some of these goals that he set for himself were like not maybe in the best interest of winning or his team it was to see if he could do it yeah totally um, and it happened that he most of the time could but yeah most of the time no problem didn't make him a good person though <laughs> No. Certainly not. Um, yeah. There's definitely a reason in my mind, hot take, that his wife is not in the movie. Oh, yeah. Another thing I have to say about Tin Cup is that um, God bless Ron Shelton for making golf interesting to watch. He also just hacked something for me visually where like we were actually kind of complaining during Caddyshack and Happy Gilmore, which are broad comedies. Where's the golf? Well, what about the sanctity of the game? <laughs> No, we were complaining that even the montages of swings and rolls were boring. We were like, golf is boring. I don't like this. Um, But Shelton understands, much like baseball, that the persona and performance wrapped up in a shot begins far below metal clanks against the ball. It's Kevin Costner's walk up onto the next hole where he and Don Johnson are kind of like speed walking each other. It's the weird like performative stops and the crouch and I've got to think about it. And the way he kind of um, checks out the crowd to see what their mood is before he starts. And I just understood on a deeper level because Ron Shelton understands how to film sports um, that this is like a it's a whole performance. It doesn't even come through on TV. If you watch like the golf channel again, to me, that is fall asleep on Thanksgiving, but Shelton gets it. It's true. It's true too, that his use of sound design also gives you a sense, maybe a false sense of like, Oh, that was like a bad clink. Ah. You know, I bet he shanked that one or, Oh, that one sounded good. So you like, know he hit it 
the right way that it makes you feel like you are in fact an expert uh if you've done nothing to prepare for this he's such a he has such a crack of the bat like way of getting you to understand sports like it's not moneyball baby it's crack of the bat sound it is. It is the antithesis of the money ballification of the sports film. It's like, oh, give us some of that good aesthetic, those good sounds, the fake authenticity of like when the camera qu- can't quite catch up to the ball in the sky. Yeah. And it's like, obviously, like we could have had a better shot where the ball is constantly in the center, but it gives it a sense of like sort of being disoriented or that like, oh, what's this ball going to do that the camera has trouble like keeping up with it or like overshoots it? Totally. I think he uses that to massage like a couple of the shots in the movie that are fake, the holes in one, of course. Um, but also what needs to be said about Tin Cup is it's Costner swinging an object and he looks so good playing golf. And a lot of those shots, as Costner is wont to tell you, are him shooting great wet shots. He nutted that one. <laughs> Sarah like looked over from the kitchen table. <laughs> <laughs> that one is just like I don't think that's a terminology. We and then he use. repeats it. I nutted that one. Oh my god. Uh, I'm gonna rate Tin Cup a bad good. I think this movie has some really glaring flaws. It is a half an hour too long. It does Rene Russo dirty like so many of the '90s movies, where she just always gets cast as this like update to Jane Russell or Lauren Bacall, this kind of statuesque. But in the 90s sense, like, she's always professional. um, And she's just, like, always telling some, like, misogynistic, charming man that, like, to stop talking to her that way. But the movies are always on the side of Costner, Eastwood, and Mel Gibson. (laughs) I just feel so bad. Um, But uh, this movie made me feel like I understood golf. I think uh, Shelton is still working in a space that, he kind of like pioneered in terms of sports movies and will never be replicated in a, as you said, in a Hollywood big budget way. Um, this is a bad good for me. I think it's a good bad. I thought the filmmaking here was more impressive to me than the end results. And I thought it was kind of long and somewhat boring. Um, so while I think it's an interesting golf and an interesting sports movie in general, uh, I don't think I'd like go back to it if it were on TV or something. Um, so yeah, good, bad. Okay. Well, Noah, my friend, I enjoyed this immensely. Yeah. Maybe if we ever see each other again, we can go golfing. I'll just bring my seven iron. That seems to be the only one you need. Exactly. And like you can ro- bring your comically large hockey stick <laughs> and do it that way. Yeah. Um, like Roy McAvoy, I will be playing only with a baseball bat, a garden shovel, and a hoe. Yeah, we'll get the hoe from Caddyshack. I'll threaten you with a, with like a pitchfork at the beginning. Perfect. I bet just to set the stage. What's what are what's like an unheard of bad score? Like it will be. We'll be like one eighteen to one twenty. That seems <laughs> that seems right. Yeah, no 62s for us. No. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in a week or two uh, with a show about the movies of Gordon Parks, um, a really interesting pioneering uh, director from the the 60s and 70s. So we're looking forward to doing that. 
I'm glad that we always go for like the 300 yard shot when it comes to our podcast yeah. and our friendship. We've yeah. really, really made it work. I'm Gasping glad that we for oxygen in the water hazard right now. Yeah, I would be the one who would jump in after your ball. <laughs>